and Russia is your neighbor, a podcast that mm, does not accept a talking to rule from a Khan who just burned down your city and decimated its population. Mm, not that anybody offers. I'm your host, Tanya. I'm Roman. We have Twitter now, so follow us at Russia underscore next door if you want to give us feedback or, I don't know, just support us. So, yeah. I'm not good at promotions. Yeah. Last time we talked about Gnezh Dmitry Ivanovich, his attempted rebellion against the Khans, and his brief victory over the forces of Mamai in 1380, and how the victory brought nothing but ruin, as Toktomish ravaged Moscow principality later. Which didn't stop Dmitry from accepting a token to rule from Toktomish, mm-hmm. and spent the last years of his life not trying to rebel again. Mm-hmm. His son and her and heir uh, Vasily I spends several years as collateral in the Toktomish's court. He's not a child at this point. He's like in his 20s. I'm pretty sure he's scared for his life and rightfully so. Uh, Vasily I escapes in 1385 and ends up in Lithuania, where he meets Sofia, the only daughter of Lithuanian Knaz Vitautas. This name should sound familiar to you. Yeah, yeah. I know him because I'm from Belarus and this is very Russified country. We know him as Vitaut, mm-hmm. but he's Lithuanian, so he is Vitautas. Yeah. Vitautas is actually the nephew of Olgerd, uh, the Lithuanian князь who reclaimed Kiev from Mongols, which is actually a pretty good time to catch up a little about how things were going in other lands of former Kievan Rus. So if you remember, Kyiv was conquered by Mongols in 1240, mm-hmm. right? But m- most of the heirs of the ruling dynasty, the descendants of Rurik, they escaped after the Battle of Kalka. Uh-huh. Those heirs, they fleed mostly west, well, not mostly, west and north, uh, to Galicia, which is now the west of Ukraine mm-hmm. and parts of Poland, and even further to Poland and to the Lithuania, to the north. Even though their lands end up being conquered by Mongols, their resistance never really stopped. Uh, the Dan- Danilo Galitsky keeps fighting Mongols even after he ups- accepts their rule. Who is Danilo Galitsky? Oh, it's uh, one of the Knazes that participated in the original unified Kievan army that fought Mongols on Kalka back in 1222. So mm-hmm. uh, he's and others have their bloodlines eventually intermingled with like Polish nobles and uh, Lithuanian knazis. Uh, even though their lands end up being conquered by Mongols, they never really stop fighting. There are constant rebellions that Mongols have to suppress. There are disobedience, they fail to pay taxes on time. Essentially, you know, regular, we don't want to comply with your regime stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise that when the Mongolian turmoil starts in 13, around like 1350s, Lithuania and Poland take way more advantage of it than Moscow does. In 1362, the heirs of these fled Knazis reclaim Kiev under Lithuanian flag. Yay! Yeah. Their leader is Olgerd. The father of Vitautas. Yes, father of Vitautas. And actually, I think the... Um, grandson of Gedimin, mm-hmm. which is a, the Polish founder mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a very important historical person for them. But yeah, they don't stop at it. Uh, and if you want to, this number is going to be important slightly later, but if you want to count, Kiev 
first captured in 1240 by Mongols and then reclaimed in 1362. So Kiev spent 122 years under the Mongol rule. That's a lot. It is, but we can come back to this number later. So Vitaudas continues his uncle's lifestyle. He fights the horde basically his entire life. He reclaims the Ukrainian plains from Toktomish around 1380s, while, <laughs> for comparison, the most resistance Moscow ever shows is refusing to pay tribute for the first time around 1406. Mm -hmm. And they don't really get decimated again, but Mongols come, they lay siege to Moscow, and the Knesses are like, yeah, we're sure, we're, we're going to pay. This was what I was talking about last time. Like... Every time they could have gone to Lithuania and ask people for help. Yeah. Help us to become independent from a golden yeah. horde, but they didn't. They were fine. Yeah, they were fighting Lithuania most of the time, mm -hmm. and it's, which is even more interesting because Lithuania at that time is also ruled by Rurikites, so also descendants of Rurik. Mm -hmm. So technically, they're like distant cousins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A distant family. And this is, it's, it's so funny you should mention that. I think that here lies the greatest division between the former Rus principalities. While Kyiv grows closer to Poland and Lithuania as their allies, Lithuania, by the way, at this point, still very much an Orthodox Christian current country. Mm -hmm. The conversion towards... The Poland. Poland is Catholic, Poland right? is Catholic, mm -hmm. yes. But Lithuania is Orthodox and Lithuania's eventual conversion uh, to... Catholicism. Catholicism is going to happen slightly later. So Kiev grows closer to these countries in both religion and language. And culture. And culture, yeah. And uh, the style of government. Like, it still supports, mm -hmm. like, their, their, the uh, church has not as much impact on the actual governance. Like, they would crown the king, but not much else. Mm -hmm. um, boyars and veches as the one, if you remember, we talked about in Novgorod, they are still very much a thing. So, you know, in Russia right now, there is an agenda that Russian language is the huge deal for them. They're talking about the reason to invade Ukraine is to protect Russian culture and language, right? So I grew up with the idea that Belarusian and Ukrainian languages are regional dialects of Russian language the great Russian language, like they call it, that it's not even languages, it's like a peasant language. But Moscow language is getting filled with words from the Horde, right? And Horde are Turks and Tatars. Yep. At this point, those two languages, <laughs> which languages are more Slavic at this point? Yeah, definitely closer to Proto-Slavic language uh, are the Polish and well, what Polish is, I don't think, uh, is also a formed language at that point. But they're all starting to branch around this period. You're correct. Russian language would eventually end up as Russian language, or like the Moscow di dialect of the Proto-Slavic language is getting more and more influenced by the Mongols. Russians today invade in Ukraine to defend Slavic culture and Russian language, and mm -hmm. they forbid to teach Ukrainian in mm -hmm. the occupied territories of Ukraine. But at the same time, Ukrainian language is more Slavic than Russian. Yeah, that's correct. I don't really know what to say here. 
they, it's it's actually a huge misconception that is exists in the West is that like they don't know how far apart Ukrainian and Russian languages actually are, and they are further apart than Portuguese and Spanish. I really think that Polish language and Ukrainian language and Belarusian language are way more closer than yeah, Russian they, language. They're they're definitely closer to each other in both mm -hmm. phonetics and uh, just the, the vocabulary mm -hmm. is more similar between the three of them. Yeah. So anyway, Russian language is influenced by Mongolian. It, well, by, yeah, but by, by the nations that mm -hmm. are. Kind of comprised by, by Mongolian occupation. Yeah, by Mongolian occupation is so, a good way to put it. Other things also influenced too. Yes, a lot. Uh, their way of government, the Muscovian way of government, grows ever closer to the ones of Mongols, to an absolutist monarchy. Mm. While previously there would be some sort of traditions put in place that would allow input from, as I mentioned previously, Vecha and Bayars mm -hmm. and landowners. It becomes more and more symbolic. Kniaz would listen to those people. They kind of become advisors, but their actual power is stripped more and more. Also, Moscovite nobles seek out chances to marry their sons off to Khan's daughters, which is another very interesting thing, is that the Rurikide bloodline no longer matters for them. Like, they want to be heirs to Chinggis. They want to carry Chinggis's blood because that puts them in a very nice positions with the Mongols. They become preferable when Mongols have to assign Kniazis to principalities and sub-principalities too. It's kind of more prevalent on like the lower level of the ruling class. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how Russians today, they tend to forget the things. Like the level of racism Asian people yeah. experience in Moscow is... It's staggering. Yeah. yeah. Russian culture is very racist and it's very racist towards its closest neighbors. It's very racist towards, well, Mongolian descend mm -hmm. uh, descendants, while in 15th century, as we see, they are proud to be of Mongolian descent. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing, it's a quite disturbing difference, really, is the acceptance of extreme brutality. So, uh, I and we're talking about Middle Ages, Mongols were brutal. Mm -hmm. as, as I mentioned before, they weren't genocidal, like, like they would not erase the culture, they would not like forbid any religious practices. So, um, I remember I watched Marco Polo, <laughs> on Netflix I... and there was an execution they put a person under the blanket or something like this and they use horses to like stomp him to yeah, death yeah yeah so th that's a that's a good example i don't know how historical that is but their executions were physically very brutal mm -hmm. and the like proportion between the crime and the punishment was extremely brutal even by medieval Europe standards. Like where, you know, like we all know medieval Europe was brutal as well. Remember but we were in Poland, in Krakow, and uh, the guy who told us that on the middle of the place, there was a, a, pole, a for, pole for executions and people were like cheering because there, there was no Netflix. <laughs> I know. It's, it, it wasn't Netflix, but it was true because like uh, for People in the Middle Ages, executions for somewhat kind of... A kind of entertainment, yes. Yeah. Uh, but that's here lies a big difference. So, 
according to historians, the medieval Europeans, Poles and Lithuanians, were shocked by the levels of brutality that they saw in by Moscow executed onto their own people to enforce Mongolian rule. So Moscow was the enforcer for the Han. They were the ones mostly suppressing any rebellions and uh, making sure that the taxes are paid. Mm-hmm. The level and the proportion of brutality towards the crime committed that was established in Mongolia kind Cri- of carried. crime being not paying taxes. For example, mm-hmm. yes, not paying taxes, failure to show up for the military gathering, like being a deserter mm-hmm. in the army, because like you know it was all about the army as well. Um, also committed a, like also considered a crime. A lot of like death penalties all around and brutal death penalties mm-hmm. at that. It was considered barbaric. How brutal should something be to be considered barbaric by a 15th century Catholic? I'm not sure. The, yeah, that's just an example of uh, the things that Mongolians I, taught Russians. I also wanted like, to... You already said that Russian monarchy became close to Mongolian monarchy, mm-hmm. which is basically like the Khan rules land, and everybody is under Khan, so it's like an absolutism. I wanted to notice that at the same time, Poland-Lithuanian Union is... Elect- Pretty much elective. Yeah, yes. it's, it's elective. You you have to qualify. You have to be a knyaz, but king's throne to, to rule over the entire union is indeed elective. You have to be. Which approved. is basically, if you look at presidents in Ukraine and Poland for the last twenty years, and you look at the presidents in Russia. Presidents. Was <laughs> in plural. Because <laughs> the other one. Yeah, there was one. Oh, that's not. Yeah. Yeah, but. Yeah. Right, so back to actual years and names. Mm-hmm. Vitautas, the Lithuanian князь that fights the horde, has a daughter, Sophia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I, the heir to the Moscow throne, is marrying her, and that's pretty much as close as it gets yeah. to a meaningful I mean, like, all the ally. time they're trying to marry to Lithuanian dynasties because the Lithuanian throne is elective, so they're trying to grab this... Get into the, yeah. get into the queue mm-hmm. for the, in, in the line for throne. Yeah, they, they are. This is not one of those cases, though. It, the, this one was really more of a hey, I don't know about this whole Mongol things. I don't know how it's going to work out. It doesn't go well mm-hmm. either, because even though Vasily is married to Vitaut's daughter, he will eventually go to war with them around like 1408. Okay. No, no, nothing big still, just to show you how much of a habit it was to fight Lithuania. <laughs> even when it's your father-in-law, it's like, no, I'm going to grab some lands from you. But yeah, regardless... Vasily dies in 1425. He lives on the throne. His son, well, also Vasily II, he actually had like five sons and all of them died. Uh, Vasily was actually his youngest. Uh Uh, And so if you, uh, Vasily I dies in his 50s. His youngest son, the only surviving son, is around 10 at the time. So the region to the throne is essentially Vitautas. But... He's really old at this point, especially by the um, standards of 15th century. The things are going well until Vitotas dies. To an extent, yes. But, oh, another important thing I want to you to notice from here on. 
we already have like Vasily the first, Vasily the second. We already had two Ivans mm-hmm. on the throne. Notice that from here on, there are gonna be no more Yuris, no more Yaroslavs, and generally no more Slavic names on the throne of Is Moscow. Is this because of the church? It is exactly because of that. So previously, uh, a князь would have their given name, but when they would were to baptize, or indeed a lot of князes, what actually what they would actually do is right before their death, mm-hmm. they would uh, extract the, the striga, which is the um, monk's clothing. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they would become monks right before they die, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at that point, they would get their Christian name. Mm-hmm. which Christian names are mostly the biblical ones. So Vasily is a Christian name, and so is Ivan. Ivan is a biblical name, mm-hmm. kind of the counterpart to John, mm-hmm. right? And Vasily comes from the Byzantium name, and Byzantium is kind of the center of the Orthodox Christianity. Still, mm-hmm. yeah, not for long, but still. Yeah, so basically there's a unification of church happens Somewhat at this period, an attempt, and it's slightly later. We're 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 gonna talk about mm-hmm. that, uh, but just notice that from now on, the name of the knights is their Christian name. It's not their given Slavic name. Mm-hmm. It's it's the name they get during the baptism. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, in Poland, we have Jagaila, Jadwiga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, without us. Mm-hmm. All yeah. So. <laughs> Tell me where the actual Rus is. Anyway, yeah, they are trying to brand the right to govern as a god-given. No longer elected by boyars or anything like that. The emperor of Byzantium was a god-given emperor, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they're trying to basically copy what happens in Byzantium at this moment. Oh, if you think this is trying to copy, get ready for some more news. Okay. So, right, yeah, Vasily II kind of has five years on the throne under the close eye of his grandfather, Vitautas. But when Vitautas dies, the князь is 15 years old. It's an adult person. It's an invitation for a bloodbath. Okay. What happens is a power struggle. He has to essentially run away from Moscow, then recaptures it, then has to run away again. Uh, he is fighting some cousins that have like claims to the Moscow throne. And I just want to give you a glimpse of how brutal this power struggle was. Somewhere in 1440s, when Vasily II captures Knyaz of Zvinigard, that guy is also called Vasily. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Vasily of Zvinigard is an ally to the rivals mm-hmm. that are trying to get the Moscow throne. He's an enemy. Yeah, he's Vasily II's enemy. Vasily of Moscow orders to blind, like physically remove the eyes of his cousin. Okay. In 1446, he's captured by these cousins and is blinded in return. His nickname in history is going to be Vasily the Dark because he couldn't see after this. Um, I'll quote historian uh, Karamzin's translation from the old Slavic language of what those cousins, the pretenders to the throne, actually told Vasily before they blinded him. Why do you love Mongols and give them the towns of Moscow to feed from? Why cover infidels in Christian gold and silver? Why are you exhausting your people with taxes? Why have you blinded our brother? 
So as you can imagine, a pretty traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Not that he wasn't brutal himself. But in 1447, he finally gets some help from Mongols. And, and Mongolian Empire is in disarray at this point. So it's kind of a miracle that he managed to find the military help he needed. So in 1447... Maybe he, it's actually the reason why he was able to find. Because there are different Karat. They are not dependent on each other anymore. So... Right, maybe. And his, uh, Moscow's alliance with the uh, Hanats that are kind of the shards of the falling apart Mongolian Empire is going to be a thing for years to come. So in 1447, he returns to Moscow. He stays the ruler of it until his death in 1460. Now, as I said, I understand that how traumatic the events were that happened to him and how they can make a person paranoid and untrusting. You literally don't see your enemies. You don't see your friends either. <laughs> Neither you do. But uh, so first of all, he has his son, Ivan the Third, okay. who helps him to rule like big time, actually. Uh, he wants to ensure that nobody ever is gonna attempt to remove his bloodline from power. He takes several steps to ensure that uh, one of them is the elimination of almost all of the sub-principalities within the territories he rules. Essentially, how it previously would have been is that uh, the great knights would gather tribute and be like the military leader for the land. But on the local places, the justice... There small, small... Yeah, there are uh, small knights. Knights who have their small governments. Yeah, mm -hmm. in, in smaller cities, in like towns. And they would execute the law and they would also uh, be the judges because that's how things were. That was the tradition. Local government. Local government, yeah. Vasily is not having it. He removes all the power, strips all the power from them. It also like creates this layer of noble people with no land to rule over. Mm -hmm. And so he eliminates almost completely that class of like smaller local rulers. And he also creates, I think, the class that would be given land for basically being a good... Oh, yeah, right. He, he, he does that. He introduces that practice. But the land is given in a different way. Like, you get the land and you get money from it. Mm -hmm. But you still have no power to execute over it. Okay. Like, you're still not the judge of those territories, mm -hmm. for example. He centralizes the power in his hand he distances himself further from Poland and Lithuania, and being married to a Lithuanian princess does not help. He bases it off of the religious incompatibility. Mm -hmm. Remember, you were talking about the unification of the church? Yeah. It kind of happens. It does not happen, actually. I mean, it, there is an attempt. Yes, exactly. There is an attempt. And uh, during that attempt, uh, a new metropolitan is elected or rather not elected, but appointed by the Constantinople. Mm -hmm. uh, Moscow does not accept that decision. Mm -hmm. Instead, they declare their own metropolitan, mm -hmm. which breaks every protocol there is. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what their church should have been is completely discommunicated from the Orthodox Church and disowned, right? But what happens actually to Byzantium? Oh, Byzantium is not having a great time right now. The Byzantium right now is an orthodox center. 
the center yes, of the Orthodox Church. It's the capital Church. of the Orthodox. It's basically like a pope, like a Vatican, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like and, a Vatican. Uh, what happens is that the Byzantium Constantinople is conquered by Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. for Muslims, right? Yep. Russians they see what happens and they were like, look, they tried to unify with Catholics, and yeah. this is their punishment. It makes them Russian Metropolitan, mm-hmm. uh, Moscow Metropolitan, the center of Orthodox Christianity, because Constantinople is no more. Yeah, except they don't call it the Moscow Metropolitan. They still keep the title of the Metropolitan of Kiev and all the Rus, mm-hmm. because that's what the title was. Yeah, but it gives them the power because they are the only metropolitan of Orthodox Church right now. Uh, they're not. There are two metropolitans. And one of them, Moscow, actively tries to eliminate. Mm. They eventually capture him and execute. Cool. Yeah. Um, that's the one actually appointed by Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Well, his appointment doesn't make sense anymore because Constantinople is uh, under Muslims. It now. still stands in 1447, but it falls within like a couple of years. Mm-hmm. That actually takes us to Ivan III, the son of Vasily II. If you think that the rebranding Moscow as the center of Orthodox religion and blah, blah, blah is a powerful move by Vasily, just wait to learn what Ivan III does. He helps his father rule since around the 1450s. His MO is claiming stuff that never really belonged to him. And uh, essentially, he does not try to get into the Polish uh, ruling bloodline. Uh, he instead marries the niece of the last emperors of Byzantium. It's wild. It, you already mentioned and that. And of course, it makes him the emperor of Byzantium. Exactly. Now, Byzantium is all but done at this point. Mm-hmm. The only thing rema- remaining of the former empire is a handful of islands, the Greek islands, mm-hmm. that are soon to be conquered. And like literally everybody knows that. The only thing that's stopping the Ottoman Empire is the don't really have a fleet yet, Mm -hmm. but they already overran Constantinople at this point. They're all over the place. Mm -hmm. So what remains is the one noble, he's the actual heir to the emperor's throne, Mm -hmm. is Thomas Palaiologos. He's the father of Sophia. He rules over these remaining islands. Her name, I think, was Zoe. Oh, yes. Zoe is her, like, Byzantian name. Uh She would be called Sophia when she... Uh, mm-hmm. joins the Moscow court. Thomas loses his throne at the same time Ivan III gains his. Mm-hmm. And Ivan sees that as an opportunity. Because the capital of Orthodox Church is no more. Mm-hmm. And there's a... Yes, that is correct. Uh, that is important for his ambitions as far as making Moscow the religious center. But it also means that there is no more Byzantine Empire. And he is married to the last heir. niece mm-hmm. of... Well, she yeah, she's not an heir, but it doesn't matter for him. So he claims himself the heir to the Byzantine Empire. He takes the title of Tsad, which is the modified Caesar, which is the title that uh, Byzantine Empire used. So that's where the word Tsad comes from. It's not Slavic or Russian word. It's a term stolen from Byzantine Empire. 
Another thing that Ivan III really likes is the coat of arms of the dynasty, the two-headed eagle. It doesn't stop him that the same two-headed eagle is already used by the Holy Roman Empire, which is the uh, state, the precursor to German and Austrian kingdoms and mm -hmm. all those stuff. So we recently watched Jungle Cruise and there was a German gentleman with the with a two-headed eagle yeah, and kind Rome, of medal or something Roman like that. Roman asked me why he's wearing Russian coat of arms and I'm like, it's not Russian. Yeah, it's not Russian. It's it's If anything, it's way more German than it is Russian because the Holy Roman Empire used this symbol since like 9th century mm -hmm. and Russia steals this symbol from Byzantium in 15th century. R roughly like a seven, 700 year gap uh, mm -hmm. for you guys to figure out what you want in your coat of arms. And they're like, now nah, we want those guys as coat of arms. On the religious front, uh, there's still the Constantinople Patriarchate, but it's now under the Ottoman occupation, essentially. It holds no real power. Like Moscow can say anything they want and the Patriarchate cannot do anything about it. So Moscow declares itself the new capital of the Orthodox Christianity. It works hand in hand with Knyaz Ivan III. He actually takes several cues from his wife, Sophia, and rebuilds Moscow Kremlin as a stone structure. So kind of happens in like the 15th century. Like the only progress. <laughs> Moscow gets is from the girl who came from Constantinople. They really want to be like Constantinople. Like, they're seriously, their core traditions are getting adjusted to be more like that of the Byzantium. He also builds a cathedral right inside the Kremlin. So Kremlin being like the fort of the Knyaz, right? But now there is an actual cathedral inside it, a huge building that just to drive home the point for everybody who didn't yet understand that church is now with the ruler. And if all of this was not enough, he steals another title, the title of Samadjerzhets, loose translation of sovereign. This title is originally used by the ruler of Tver. He's a pretty interesting guy. His name is Boris. He's not on good terms with Moscow. He's not on bad terms with Moscow either. He just lived his life and he wants to live his life. He wanted a little more than that. Uh, the reason he invents the term of Samadjerzhets is because he keeps trying through diplomacy and probably lots of bribes uh, to get himself named a king of Tver. But the title of king can only be given king by... King or sorry? King, uh, because he tries to do that through the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, so because there's a difference. Lithuania and Poland, they use king from Konung. Yeah. Of German word Konung or Swedish, I don't know. Norman. Nordic. 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 Yeah. And Russians, they use Caesar. Yeah, Tsar coming mm -hmm. from Caesar. Yeah. But so the, the period I'm talking about slightly precursors mm -hmm. uh, this attempt to steal the Tsar mm -hmm. uh, from Byzantines. So he's trying to get himself recognized as king, probably just because he wants a title. I don't really know what, what that would have done for him. He's actually one of the reasons that that reconciliation or unification of churches has been attempted. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one to call for uh, the gathering of the religious leaders that would were to discuss and mm -hmm. accept uh, the unification of churches. 
eventually doesn't work in his favor. He doesn't get the title. And so he's, instead, he starts calling himself Samadjerzhets, which is, I have given myself this land or something, loosely translated. But he does get his like chapters of the church to support him. The church that resides with his city says that he has a God-given right to rule, which is interesting. Uh, but what Ivan III likes about this whole situation is the formula of the powers that Boris describes his power as. And the formula sounds like this. I, the Grand Prince, am free to reward whomsoever I wish and to execute whomsoever I wish. And Probably so that's the last one was really more of the last, more yeah. of the letter. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, this formula becomes the formula formula for the power of the Tsar. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not the only thing that he likes and just takes. In 1478, with the help of his allies from the Horde, uh, Ivan captures Novgorod. He actually does it for the second time. He first ransacks Novgorod in 1471. And then seven years later, he comes back and just attaches permanently the territory of Novgorod Republic. Still a republic at that point. Can you imagine that? Poor people. Yeah, he just attaches it to the Moscow Principality. And that's the end of Somebody Novgorod's Somebody needs to tell Novgorod that they like are they have a separate country. They had a pretty dope history, yeah. yeah. They were like Vikings and with independence, with like certain democracy, with a huge level of trade and resources and... And then just Moscow came around. Well, guess what? Should not have been a neighbor of Moscow. As we all shouldn't have. Yeah. Just two years later, uh, in 1480, Ivan's army finally becomes bigger than the army of the Horde. And it's not because his army is that big. It's because Horde deteriorated. Yeah, it's because yeah, Horde is falling apart, essentially. In 1480, Ivan III refuses to pay taxes. Uh, the Horde shows up for a fight and quite quickly realize that they're about to lose. The fight actually never happens. There is no fight for independence between Moscow and Mongols. They literally just meet on the river. They stand there. The, in the Russian history books, the, the event is named Stayanie, mm -hmm. being standing. It's not fighting. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. Fighting and standing are two completely different things. And what happens is that Hans just accept Moscow as an independent ally and Moscow are like, yeah, we're your ally because from there on, even though they're independent, they would still be in a military alliance with Mongols and with all of the Hanats that kind of sprouted from the Golden Horde for various reasons. They didn't really fight the Horde at all. I want you to do some quick math for me here. So you remember the Kiev was under Mongolian rule for 122 years, from mm -hmm. 2040 to 1362. Mm -hmm. Now that you know when Moscow finally became independent, which is 1480, mm -hmm. and I'll remind you that Moscow became conquered by Mongols in 1238. Mm -hmm. How long did Moscow spend under the Mongolian occupation? Math is not my uh, strong side, but 200 for sure, 242. 242 years, almost exactly twice as long as Kiev. So remember you said 122 years in Mongolian occupation is a lot? Mm -hmm. 
242 years in Mongolian occupation that don't even end in you fighting for independence. It just end in you becoming big enough to be recognized as an ally. Essentially, Moscow is the same formation as the Hanats, like the Crimean Hans getting independence from the Horde got it in pretty much the same way Moscow got it. Like they never fought for their independence. They were just like, okay, we're big enough now for us to stop paying you tribute, but we're still going to be buddies, right? So 250 years of waiting and gathering. We just need to wait till Russian Empire collapses by itself? <sighs> Please don't give me hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if you think that Russia was bad when it was an enforcer for Mongols, just wait to learn how bad it was when the Mongols were not taking away half of, it is, of its income. Uh, with the free money that they no longer have to submit to their Han friends, Ivan III grows a lot of military power. Mm -hmm. What he does with it is, of course, being a terrible neighbor. Uh, he conquers Yaroslavl, he conquers Rostov, most of Ryazan principality. And eventually Tver, the place where Boris, the Samadjerzhets, sat. Just because he don't, doesn't like things being he's independent from... Anymore. Well, he's actually dead at that point. Um, so he doesn't get to see the fall of his uh, home city. He died happy. He died in 15th century. I don't think anybody died happy in 15th century. But uh, yeah, and if you don't see the pattern here, he's conquering literally everything that he borders with. He keeps calling himself Tsar of all the Rus. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Like Metropolitan of Kiev on all the Rus. And he's Tsar of all the Rus. Not of Kiev yet, because Kiev is still under Lithuanian flags. So the great Duchy of Lithuania, who are ancestors of Rurik too. Yeah, they're right away. pretty much in the same right as Moscow mm -hmm. uh, to rule Kiev. They are fighting Mongols, and when Mongols are gone, they are fine. They just, we will live in our Lithuania and everything is going to be okay, right? But Russians, not Russians, but... Moscovites. Moscovites will be like, oh, Mongols are gone? Fine, let's conquer Lithuania. Yeah, well, that's what they do with Novgorod, because Novgorod was like paying taxes to uh, Mongolia, and kind of now that Mongolia is not in the picture... Mm -hmm. Moscow just, just captures everything that they can reach. They really want to capture Kiev. In 1493, Ivan makes an ally with the Crimean Hanat, the, one of the shards of uh, the Golden Horde. Together, they raid Kiev, which is under Lithuanian... Empire. Not yeah. Empire, but Dutch. Yeah, under Lithuanian flags, essentially. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing is that the Han loots a lot of treasures of the given rulers, like historical treasures, like uh, parts of the outerwear and like lots of golden trinkets and such. And the Crimean Han sends all that loot to Moscow to recognize Moscovian князь, or Tsar, as they call themselves now, as the ruler of Kiev. Poor Kiev, leave the city alone, please. It doesn't get better. Um, so they're at war with Lithuania, and this war ends in 1494 with the signing of the forever peace. Can you guess how long that peace lasted? I don't know, one year. Uh, no, a little more, a little more. It lasts for less than six years. And according to the peace treaty, Moscow dropped the claims to Smolensk and Bryansk. In 1500, what they do is they capture Bryansk. That 
they dropped the claims to. Lithuania is not in great military shape at this point, so the war does not go well for them. In 1503, they sign another peace. That treaty would last for only four years this time. I think around this time it becomes abundantly clear that Moscow wouldn't stop until it conquers literally everything it has a border with. Yes, treaty does not help. None of the treaties with Moscow help. Um, None. It, it is the end of the rule for Ivan III. He's pretty old at this point. He has a son, Vasily III, who continues the fine tradition of fighting Lithuania. Uh, but we'll talk about him next time. Trust me, it keeps getting worse from here. Mm. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, follow us on Twitter, write us any feedback you want, and try to avoid being neighbors with Russia. <laughs>